That is the best introduction I've ever gotten. Thank you, Kurt. Just, a, just an awkward pause. Perfect. It's on brand for me, I feel like. Now, if I remember how to use iPads, one sec. I know. So it's interesting. This is probably the least controversial sermon I've ever preached. And when you hear the content, you're like, yeah, this is pretty like, basic level stuff. And as I was praying for the sermon this morning and for, uh, for us this morning, I just got this sense that there are people that are going to get defensive about this. And I don't know, maybe it's because you're going to be like, oh, this is too basic and who cares? This doesn't apply to me. Or there, I just have this sense that there's, there's some kind of barrier to what I'm going to say this morning for some people here. So I just would like to invite you uh, up front. I feel like I'm like, setting you up to be defensive, but I'd like to invite you to just open your heart. And, and if, the, if you're listening to this sermon and something happens inside you where you're like, yeah, but, I'd just like to invite you to set that aside for this morning. Because I think for everything we do, there's always a yeah, but. And I think God wants us to get to something this morning that is different than that. Fair enough? Cool. So uh, I recently got to sit and be a part of this musical experience that, is Callan in the room? Where's Callan? Callan's somewhere. Yeah, so Callan also got to experience it, got to experience it. And the premise of, of the, the director came out and it was this like orchestra, there's probably like 30 musicians on the stage. And it was like, he put the music up on the screen and I'll, uh, you'll see it in, in just a second. He said, this is essentially what made minimalism a thing. And the premise of it is there's just, there's 50 like lines of music and each musician just goes through it one at a time, however they want. So one musician may be on the first line and spend 30 seconds just repeating that first line. Another musician might do that for 10 seconds and then go to the second line and do that for a, a minute and a half and then do the third. And so all the musicians are separately playing the same piece of music, but kind of in whatever order they want. And then they performed it. Uh, and I just want to give you a, a little piece of that. This is, uh, this is the same song. See in here, like, first of all, you can see in the YouTube video, 40 minutes. So they're starting that first phrase. And you hear a da-da-da-da. That's the second phrase. Some people are still in the first one. And just that piano just in your brain. Like water, what is that called? Water torture. Now some have moved on to the next phrase. So this is fun, right? Isn't classical music great? Oh yeah, now there's some tension. Oh boy. When Callan and I saw this live, he actually had to leave the room. Uh, because of what it did to his brain and it, what it was doing to my brain and my soul. I was dying inside. So uh, this goes on for a while and let's just fast forward a little bit. So now we have more complex phrases. Does this sound like anything? It's like, it's almost like they like, the musicians were in separate rooms and they recorded it all separately. Let's further on, about, this is 19 minutes in, if you're not dead yet.
are you just, is this just me and you're just going, what is happening? <laughs> why did this make, why is this a thing? <laughs> like this, this happened in the, in the 60s and it's still a thing. Why is this a thing? Maybe this is just a, where I'm just on stage just dying inside. This is where you see me finally lose it. So this is near the end and then I finally, this is what the end sounds like. Yeah, that piano player, 40 minutes. And that's the song. Do you feel like you wish you got shot in the head instead of listening to that? Yeah, me too. <laughs> so this is, is music, and it, apparently, and I had a really hard time with it, and Callan, of course, had to leave the room. Uh, and we were just like thinking about this music, but... God told me something while this performance was happening, and it wasn't you've done something wrong, because that's how I felt. Um, I should not hate on this music, because some people like, like this kind of music, and that's totally fine. And those musicians did their best, and it was, it was an interesting performance. But what I find fascinating is there is a composer to this song, and the composer intentionally made these lines, right? Like, this is not just like random phrases, all of these phrases have an intentionality to them. The problem is they don't seem to fit anywhere, right? And there doesn't seem to be this sense of, well, first you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this. Because if, if you did that, this is what, uh, what classical music that I like. This is my actual like, favorite song. This is uh, Vivaldi Concerto in B minor. Oh, yeah. See, there's still phrases, there's still intentionality, but it all kind of has a place. Oh, man. You know, forget the sermon, let's just listen to classical music. <laughs> See, there's a different phrase, but it fits. And there's the same bass line happening, and there's a repeated phrase. So repeated phrases aren't a problem. And apparently, whoever put this YouTube video up is really into like goth or something because that was the picture that they, they chose for that. And I, I don't know. No, I don't know what that has to do with Vivaldi. But. So there's a, there seems to be a difference between when there's an intentionality to each individual thing and when there's an intentionality to each individual thing and it fits in a bigger whole, a bigger picture, a bigger piece of music, if you will. So uh, when I was listening and comparing these two pieces of music, I was going, oh, my relationship with God looks a lot like the first piece of music. Actually. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I have all of these individual phrases and all these little things that, I, that are my relation, make up my relationship with God. But a lot of times it feels haphazard and random. And it just feels like I'm going to do this one musical phrase for a while until the spirit leads otherwise, and then I'm going to do this second thing, and then I'm going to do this third thing, and then this other thing is going to happen, and then 50 minutes later, I, the piano player wants to die. Like, in my, the metaphoric piano player in my life, I guess. I don't know what that is. That's nothing. <laughs> I've been listening to artsy-fartsy music, and I've gotten pretentious. Um, but, so, I feel like my life is this, like, disconnected intentionality, if I could put it that way. And I, I wonder if this morning God would have us examine our lives and take all of those individual intentional things and piece them together to make a more musical whole. 
So we've been in uh, Genesis. We've been doing Genesis Origins, which I feel like I want to compare to Batman Begins, but Batman doesn't have an Origins movie <laughs> yet. So I, I want to say it like super uh, comic booky, and I, there's nothing. Again, I, I, that's just bonus for you. Uh, Genesis Origins is a thing. Uh, so the story we want to look at this morning is the story of Abraham. And, or we're going to call him Abram today because he hasn't changed his name yet. And what's going to be fascinating as we look at Abram, he's going to show us something about our relationship with God. Where it currently may feel disconnected and random and tense. Isn't that first piece of music tense? And good music is supposed to have tension and then release. And then more tension because it's interesting and then release. And if your relationship with God is like mine, a lot of times there's periods of just tension and tension and tension and tension and then stop. So let's look at that this morning. That's where we're, we're going and that's what we're going to explore. And we have Tim Coffin. You're going to pray for the sermon this morning. Tim is one of my, I say this about everyone, but he's one of my favorite people. Uh, when we go to 20s on the second, he always, uh, we like just hang out and we eat food and Tim is always like, so Kevin, I have a theological question for you. And he asks like really pointed questions that lead us to really interesting places in our conversation. So thanks for praying. Like I said, I've, this is not a very controversial sermon, but for some reason I just am prepared for resistance. So if you could pray for that for us and uh, lift up another church, that'd be lovely. Uh, Father, thank you so much for uh, this opportunity to be able to come and just come before you and okay. kind of in worship and adoration and just come before you this, uh, for this sermon to be able to learn and grow. And uh, if there is any tension or any uh, defensiveness of our just flesh, that you would uh, suppress that and to be able Thank to you, overcome that so that we can grow and overcome and become more and become who we need to be uh, for you and your kingdom. Mm. I do lift up uh, Reach Church. Um, just continue to uh, feed their outreach and just continue to pour into them and uh, just pray for the rest of the sermon. Pray for Kevin that you can speak through him. In Thank Jesus' you, name, amen. Amen. So speaking of tension, last week and the week before, we watched these Bible Project videos that both of them ended with the end of chapter 11, and it was like, and then everything changed, but you'll have to tune in next time. Well, I have good news for you. It is now next time. <laughs> We're going to watch the second half of, uh, of the Genesis video, so here is Bible Project. The book of Genesis. In the first video, we saw how chapters 1 through 11 set up the basic storyline of the Bible. God has created all things, and he makes humans in his image to rule the world on his behalf. The humans choose sin and rebellion, and so the world spins out of control into violence and death, all leading up to the rebellion and scattering of the people in Babylon. And so the big question is, what is God going to do to rescue and redeem his world? Well, out of that scattering at Babylon, the author traces a genealogy of just one family that leads eventually to a man named Abram, later known as Abraham. And God's promise to Abraham at the beginning of chapter 12 opens up a whole new movement in the story. God calls Abraham to leave his home and go to the land of Canaan, which God says will become his one day. 
And in that land, God promises to make Abraham into a great nation, to make his name great and to bless him. Now, these promises are connected back to earlier parts of the book. So Babylon had arrogantly tried to make a great name for itself, and that didn't go over very well. But God, in his generosity, is going to bestow a great name on this no-name guy, Abraham. And God's blessing of Abraham echoes all the way back to that original blessing God gave humanity in the beginning. So the question is, why is God going to bless Abraham and his family? And the last line of God's promise makes this clear. So that all the families of the earth will find God's blessing in you. Now, this is key for understanding the whole rest of the biblical story. God's plan is to rescue and bless his rebellious world through Abraham's family. And this is why the whole rest of the Old Testament story is just going to focus on this one family, eventually called the people of Israel. This is also why Israel will later be called a kingdom of priests at Mount Sinai. God wants to use them to show all of the other nations what he's like. And ultimately, this is the promise that gets picked up by the later biblical prophets and poets who say that its fulfillment will come through Israel's messianic king, whose reign will bring justice and peace to all of the nations. Now, at this point of the story, none of that's clear. You just have to keep reading and watch the promise develop. And so the rest of the book focuses on Abraham and his family. First, Abraham himself, then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons. And the stories about each generation, they're united by two main themes. So first, each generation of Abraham's family is marked by repeated failure. They just keep making really bad decisions that mess up their lives and that put God's promise in jeopardy. However, God remains faithful to them. He keeps rescuing them from themselves and reaffirming his commitment to bless them and bless the nations through them despite their failings. So the Abraham stories. God had promised Abraham a huge family, but on two different occasions, he's afraid for his life because other men are attracted to his wife. And so he denies that he's even married to her, which creates, of course, all of these problems. And not only that, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they can't have children. And so Sarah arranges for Abraham to sleep with one of their servant girls, which also creates all of these problems in the family. But each time, God bails Abraham out. And in chapters 15 and 17, God even formalizes his promise to Abraham with an official commitment called a covenant. This is a classic scene. God invites Abraham to look up at the night stars and to count them. And he says, that's how numerous your family is going to be. And despite all of the odds, having no kids and no way to have any at the moment, Abraham looks up in the sky and simply trusts God's promise. And God responds by entering into a covenant with Abraham, promising that he will become a father of many nations, that God's blessing may come to the whole world. God asks Abraham to mark his family with a sign of the covenant, circumcision of all the male boys in the family. This is a symbol to remind them that the fruitfulness of their family is a gift from God. And so Abraham has lots of kids eventually, and he dies at a good old age. Now, the Jacob stories play out these themes even more dramatically. From birth, Jacob lives up to the meaning of his name, which is deceiver. He cheats his brother Esau out of his inheritance and blessing, and he does it by deceiving his old blind father, no less, and then he just takes off. He goes on to take four wives, even though he really only loves one, Rachel, and this creates all of these rivalries in the family. The only thing that humbles Jacob is being deceived by his uncle Laban, who cheats him out of years of his life. 
the tables have finally turned. And so it's a humbled Jacob that returns to his homeland. And in a very strange story, Jacob ends up wrestling with God as he demands that God bless him. Some things never really change, do they? However, God honors his determination, and he passes Abraham's blessing on to him. And he renames Jacob as Israel, which means wrestles with God. Now, it's this last part of the book, the story of Jacob's sons, where all the themes come to a head. Jacob loves his second to youngest son, Joseph, more than any of the others, and he gives him this special jacket. And the ten older sons come to hate Joseph, and so they kidnap him, and they plan to kill him, but instead they decide to just sell him into slavery in Egypt, where he ends up in prison. Talk about family failure. But God is with Joseph, and he orchestrates Joseph's release from prison, and Pharaoh ends up elevating Joseph to second in command over all of Egypt. And so Joseph saves the nation of Egypt during a famine, and he also ends up saving his brothers and his family from starving to death. And so once again, we can see the folly and the sin of Abraham's family is met with God's faithfulness, who subverts even the evil of the brothers into an occasion to save life. And this is actually what Joseph says right near the end of the book. He says to his brothers, you all planned this for evil, but God planned it for good to save many lives. Now, these words are strategically placed at the end of the book because they summarize not only the story of Joseph and his brothers, but the book as a whole. From Genesis 3 onward, humans keep acting selfishly and doing evil, but this God is not going to leave his world to its own devices. He remains faithful and determined to bless people despite their failures. You can see this especially in how that mysterious promise about the descendant of the woman gets developed throughout the book. So remember, Genesis 3, God promised that this wounded victor would come and crush the snake and defeat evil at its source. And the author then connects this promise directly to the line of Abraham. This is a part of how God's going to bring his blessing to the nations. Now, from Abraham, this promise gets connected to Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. And this is how. In an extremely important poem in chapter 49, an aging Jacob, he's on his deathbed. He wants to bless his 12 sons. And when he comes to Judah, Jacob predicts that Judah will become the tribe of Israel's royal leaders and that one day a king will come who will command the obedience of all the nations and fulfill God's promise to restore the garden blessing to all of the world. And then after this, Jacob dies. And later, Joseph dies too. And the growing family remains in Egypt. And so the book of Genesis ends with all of these future hopes and promises left hanging and undeveloped. And it forces you to turn the page to see how it's all going to turn out. But for now, that's the book of Genesis. Isn't that cool? I just want like that as a poster. That's super cool. So we're in this series, Genesis Origins, and the point of what we're trying to accomplish is look at the Old Testament and, and understand how understanding the Old Testament informs the New Testament. And because Jesus, everything he said and did, he did from the understanding of the Old Testament. And so we have a tendency to be unbalanced and go, ah, oh, that's an old God and that's an old Testament, and that's not relevant, so we're just going to ignore that and start at Matthew chapter 1, and uh, there's a lot of, lot of good stuff here. So we're going to cover um, Abram, and I'm, he already said a lot of it, but we're going to 
dive a little deeper. So in Genesis 12, it says, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and make you famous and you'll be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed and Lot went with him. So, so far, up until this point in Genesis, we know nothing about Abram. We know his family because uh, chapter 11 ends with just this genealogy of Abram and, his, and Lot, who is his nephew. But we have no understanding of his relationship with God, what he's like. Is he a righteous man? Is he a foolish man? Is he a wicked man? Is he a smart man? We know nothing about him. We just know God comes to him and says, hey, leave everything you know. And in exchange for doing that, I'm, I'm going to make you a promise. And here's this promise. And we don't know if this is the first time Yahweh interacted with Abram or if this has been a long-standing relationship. But what we know is Abram says, okay. And to kind of fast forward through Abram's timeline a little bit, uh, the next thing that happens is he keeps traveling around all these different places. And as the Lord speaks to him, he keeps making these altars to, work, to give praise to Yahweh. And then the very next thing is he lies about his wife and says, this is my sister, and gets kicked out of Egypt. So kind of a down moment, you might say. Then uh, Genesis 13, uh, Abram and Lot, they, they go to the land, and he's like, hey, Lot, your pick. We'll, we'll cut it in half. You can choose whichever half you want. Lot picks the, the better half, and he's like, great, that's, that's fine. No big deal. Genesis 14, Lot actually gets captured, and Abram becomes this military leader or something, and rescues his nephew and defeats these armies and has this great victory. And that takes us to Genesis 15, which in my opinion is the most important verse about Abram in the entire Bible. And here it is. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And here's the verse that is the most important thing, more important than anything else. Then Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Now, we who've grown up in Christian circles and we know the New Testament fairly well, we read this and go, yeah, okay, faith, got it, next. But if you are just reading the book of Genesis and you have no other context, you forget everything you think you know about the Bible, this is a wild verse. This is strange. This is unusual. This is countercultural. Because uh, in the beginning, God created uh, man and women, Adam and Eve, in his image. And they, they do certain actions that God says that was not righteous. Because you weren't righteous, you are not right with me. So the idea of righteousness is established as right things or things that God is pleased with, God-pleasing actions. And Adam and Eve don't do righteous. 
And then they have kids, and their kids don't do righteous, and so they're punished. And then Noah comes along, and everyone in Noah, like Justine preached last week so beautifully, is everyone was so wicked that they had no good thoughts at all. Everything was wicked. So they didn't do any righteous anything. And then you have Noah, who's this one guy who does righteous. He listens to the Lord. And I'm intentionally saying it this way. He does righteous. I know that's not like good English or whatever. But because righteousness is something you do to become right with God. And up until this moment, everyone has tried and everyone has failed, but they're judged based on whether they do righteous or not. And then you have Abram, who we know nothing about except that God tells him to go and he does. So you go, oh, okay, so he just did righteous. And then he uh, makes this altar and, and they're like, okay, cool, more righteous is happening. This is a righteous guy. God can use him. And then he goes to Egypt and he lies about his wife and says, this is my sister because he's afraid of what will happen. And he gets kicked out of Egypt and you go, oh, that's not righteous. That's wicked. So maybe, maybe Abram is just going to be like Noah. Like he started out doing some good stuff. God used him, but then ultimately he didn't do righteous. So he's, he, we'll find a new solution, I guess. Maybe his sons will do better. And then he goes with Lot and they go into this land. So apparently the deal's still on because he still gets to go into this land. And he gets raised up as this leader and he rescues his nephew. And so they're like, okay, so he's doing righteous again. Okay, so I got it. He's a righteous guy. And then in this story, in Genesis 15, we, the equation changes. Because it, it used to be Adam and Eve didn't do righteous. Noah didn't do righteous. Abram believed, which counts as righteous? That doesn't make sense. He didn't do righteous. He didn't do the righteous thing. So how, how does this work? And here's what it looks like. is The typical pattern is righteousness equals right with God. And here for the first time ever in history as far as we know, it becomes Abram's pattern of faith makes you right with God. Isn't that weird? Isn't that strange? Why would he do this? So for me, uh, my relationship with God is like the, this complicated piece of music. Where I, do, I have all of these little pieces, right? And I do them in a certain order. And I can tell you uh, the biggest struggle that I have, that if this struggle wasn't there, my relationship with God would be amazing, incredible, awesome. And in fact, it's the same problem I have in my personal life, that if I, if I fix this problem, that my personal life would be amazing. Every relationship that I have, if, if it's good, it's in spite of this one thing, and if it's bad, it's because of this one thing. And the one thing that, for me, determines my relationship with God is, I just, it has to be a thing. It has to be like an event, like, so when I think about spending time with God, I'm like, okay, so I have to wake up early, probably, because that's what holy people do, uh, somehow. Uh, and, then, and I, you know, I haven't, I had to have, like, not sinned, like, kind of leading up to it. There has to be kind of this, like, moment of consecration, because I don't want to go into his presence having just sinned. So, like, if Johanna and I got in a big fight, I can't, like, there's, like, a, a a cool down period before I'm allowed to go into God's presence, right? 
and uh, after this, this, terror, this cool down period happens, then you got to open with like some soaps and we got to read all the, all the soaps and probably watch a Bible project video or, uh, and make it a thing. And I'm a worship leader, so worship is essential to my relationship with God. So of course I have my guitar. I'm going to do a few songs of worship, uh, maybe five or six songs of worship. And then I start realizing that I'm just getting distracted by playing guitar. So I'm going to put on a YouTube video of worship, and I'm just going to sing, close my eyes, and like enter into his presence for a while. And and then I want to reflect on the soap passage and uh, really make sure that I feel it deep and and, and get it in my soul. And there's got to be a speed bump moment. So I'm just going to wrestle with that for a while. And then, it's, I know it's been like 45 minutes, but now I have to actually pray, right? That's a thing. And so I'm going to get out my prayer request list and start praying for all the people on my list and start wrestling with all of the things in my life. And uh, there's just so much to do. And it has to be a thing. It has to be like a big event. And suddenly my relationship with God feels like a burden, And that's why my relationship with God struggles. It's because I feel like my relationship with God is a burden. And so when you wake up and you just feel like, I just don't want to do it today. Can we just not? I don't have the energy to do the production. When we talk about on staff, we've been, as we plan events, my word for the year has been, let's do it scrappy. Like you, we can get like super nice plates and super nice everything and like make, bring in a, a professional band and like do lights a certain way and, and redo the entire stage. Well, let's just do it scrappy. Can we just do it scrappy? What's the, thing, what's the important thing that needs to happen? And so when I look at Abram and I go, okay, he just believed. He didn't do righteous. He just believed. And it made me realize, like, oh, all of this stuff, all this work that I'm doing, it's my attempt at trying to do righteous. Like, I, I think if I just read my Bible, I'll be righteous. Oh, I'm not righteous. God, God and I have a bad relationship because I don't pray enough. Of course, that was the problem. I'm not, I'm not doing enough prayer. I'm not doing enough righteous. Uh, I have to get up early, which in its own is a righteous act for me. But, like, I didn't do that, so I guess I'm not righteous. And I've made my relationship with God dependent on what I do. But that's not what Abram does here. He just, he just believes. And when we get to this place in our relationship with God where it's not a burden, where it's just a, a relationship, right? Like, I just want to hang out with my friends, so I call them up and I hang out. And we don't have to make it a big thing. We just hang out. And when we're done, we go, man, that was a fun time. When my relationship with God becomes like that, it's about, what's the word? Love. And when it's about love, it's not about anything else except just love. So Paul, in the New Testament, wrote a letter to Rome. And I've told you in sermons past that this is, the most, in my opinion, the most important book in the New Testament, and I, I hold to that. This is the book of Romans. And he talks about Abraham in the book of Romans in chapter 4. He says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are, are not a gift, but something they've earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. So if I do a job for you, 
and you give me money for that job, I don't go, what a nice gift you've given me. What I say is, I believe that is mine and you've been holding it for me. Thank you. Because I did a job and the exchange rate is I do a job and you give me money. If I do nothing and you give me money, then I go, oh, that was a gift. What a nice gift. That was, that was very kind of you. And so uh, if our relationship with God is this exchange rate, right? Like I do good things in an exchange, I get relationship with God. Well, not really. If, if that's the transaction level that we're, we're operating on, then I get to like do nice things and I'm like, I believe you owe me one answer to prayer. Thank you. <laughs> right? <laughs> like if we're gonna do transaction, that's, the, that's how it works. And the, the hilarious, hilarious part is we've tried this. God lets us try this. And he let Adam and Eve try it. And it didn't work. And he let Noah try it, and it didn't work. And he probably was, was, Abraham was like, okay, I guess I'll try this, and it doesn't work. And all throughout Scripture, people try it, and it doesn't work. And you and I, every single day, we try, and we just can't be good enough. No matter how hard I try, I can never be righteous enough. I can never do enough right things to have a relationship with God. Paul talks about this, the chapter before in Romans, where he says, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. So, Our relationship with God is not based on a transaction. It's not based on, uh, I do the right things, and so I get a relationship with you. We just can't do it. We've tried. Everyone has sinned and has fallen short of that standard. But we do get this gift. He's offered us this free gift. Well, that's not true, actually. It's not a free gift. It's free to us. But it cost him everything. This is the payment. This is what my, my relationship costs me. This is that free gift. And so I don't need to be made, I don't need to do righteous. I'm actually like made righteous when I just have faith, when I just believe. See, I, when I think about Abraham's story, I want it to go differently. Because when I think of like living for God, I think of these like sexy moments, like high, like I'm going to stand on a stage and preach and it's going to be amazing and God's going to move, right? Or like I'm going to go uh, talk to a coworker about Jesus and it's going to be awesome. Or I'm going to pray for healing and God's going to heal people. I'm going to give a prophetic word and someone's going to be like, how did you know that? I'm going to be like, it's the Holy Spirit uh, speaking through me to you and he wants to know you and, and they're going to get saved and the whole uh, Bellevue is going to get saved because of, of, of what God is doing in me and through me. I'm going to have this sexy, amazing moment, right? That's how I want to do relationship with God. And so when I look at the Abraham story, Abram's story, what I want is for God to come down and it be this like dramatic moment, And he's like, 
I'm gonna make you a great nation, so go, and I'm gonna bring a pillar of fire. I know that's coming in, in Exodus, but I wanna do it now. And I want Abraham to be like, like floating to, as he travels into the promised land. And, and as he gets to the promised land, he's like, yeah, that's right, God has my back. And it, it's to be this like dramatic event. And then when he goes into, into Egypt and he has this like fear moment, I want, an, I want like a, a encounter with Pharaoh. And I want him to be like, like God is gonna show up in this amazing, miraculous way in this big moment. And despite Abram's failure, I want God to do something revolutionary. And then uh, in this like military moment where Abram's rescuing Lot, I want the story to go different. I want Abram to be like, like I just said the name of Yahweh and the armies fell, right? Like I just want this big moment and everything changed because God was there. But what actually happens is all these big moments happen and whether God's there or not, the scriptures don't really say a whole lot about those. But there is a moment that the scriptures talk a lot about. And it's this quiet moment. It's Abram, maybe he can't sleep one night. Like he's in this new land and there's still like unusual sounds and he, he like, so he like gets up and he walks outside and he's like, I don't recognize this sky because I'm a foreigner here. This is new. And maybe he hears like an owl or some, an, uh, an, a night animal like scurry around or something like that. And he's just in this quiet moment where he's looking up at the sky. And it's quiet and peaceful. There's no one else there. There's no problems. There's no armies there's no Pharaoh. It's just him in the sky. And in that moment, there's Yahweh. And Yahweh goes, hey, look up at the stars. Count them. Can he count all these stars? And everyone's like, I think there's like 30 over there. And he's like, actually, that's a satellite. <laughs> no, that wasn't a thing back then. It's like, try and count the stars if you can. I'm making a promise with you. And I get this sense of Abram, like he's in a hammock or something. He's like lounged back. He's relaxed. He's in this intimate moment with God. No one else is there. It doesn't matter about anything else. Suddenly the foreignness of the land doesn't seem so foreign. Suddenly the scurrying of the animals don't, Seem to, he doesn't seem to notice as much. In a moment, he forgets that he and his wife can't have kids. In this, in this moment, he forgets that he just had a battle. He forgets everything else, and it's just him and God. I wonder how many of these moments God has invited us to, and we're just so busy, and my, my prayer list is there, and my responsibility is there. And all the things I have to get done are there. And because of all those things are in the way, I miss this intimate moment with God. Say, so I want God to be in the big, but God finds himself in the small. And out of the small moments, the big come. That's the kind of relationship I want with God small moments. And I think this idea, if anyone is going to close their heart and say, 
this sermon, and yeah, but it's right here. Because I think there's people that are uncomfortable with this idea. Because if you're a task person, if you're a task-driven person, or if you consider yourself a moral person, this is challenging. Because you, the thought could be, well, wait, doesn't living right matter? Well, wait a minute. Are you saying it doesn't matter what I do? Are you saying that the stuff doesn't have to get done? That doesn't seem right. Of course things matter. Of course it matters how you live. Of course all of those things are true. But do you see how if you, if you don't get this in the right order, you become this chaotic piece of music that has all of this stuff happening? When you have to get the first thing first, and the second thing second, and the third thing third, See, in my life, I find myself uh, finding this relationship with God where it's, it's not a burden, it's a joy, it's fun, it's light, it's just me and him. It's, uh, I was reading a book, that the author described it as a loving union, and that's all there is to it. And my performance doesn't matter, my lists don't matter, my failure doesn't matter. It's just me and God. And because I believe, because I have faith, that's enough. And then out of that, it makes me want to be a different kind of person. It makes me want to be transformed. And so I allow him to transform my life, and I start doing righteous. But not because I needed it to get access to God. See, we have a cause and effect problem, right? We think if I do righteous, I get access to God. And the reality is, if I get access to God, then I can finally do righteous. I can finally get it right. We finally put the song in the right order. So in my life, I get to this place where I just love him and it's this loving union. And out of that, I start doing righteous. And then I start doing more righteous. And then I mess up. And I go, well, shoot, I, me- I didn't do righteous. I don't have a relationship with God anymore. And I, have, I get to this shame place because I didn't do righteous. And I forget. Oh, that's not what it's about. At all. I can never, there's nothing I can do to separate me from this loving union with God because he paid the price for this. And anytime I think that I can work at it to earn it, I undermine this. And I, you, just, you just can't. There's no work I can do that can be greater than this than what Jesus did on the cross. And God isn't asking us to. So in, in all God is asking us to do is have faith like Abram who just believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And in that quiet moment, he said, I know you and I want to get to know you more and I want you to get to know me. And this relationship with God just becomes about love. And when that happens, our life starts being like the symphony and everything makes sense. And everything's in an order. And there's an intentionality. And there's big moments coming. But it came out of the small. And this amazing, intricate detail work that God wants to do in your life. And these big moments that God wants to do in your life come not because you did the right stuff, but because he loves you and because you have faith. And that's all this is. That's all any of this is, is just have faith.
And then we, out of that, we get to do righteous. So Lord, we come before you. And Lord, I so want to get it right, and I so often get it wrong, because I try and do things for you. I try and make my relationship about what I've done or what I haven't done or what I've uh, sinned or haven't sinned or uh, whether I've uh, checked off the right things of the list or not. And it's not about any of that. So Lord, I want to repent for trying to make our relationship about anything except you and me. And that's it. Lord, we thank you that you allowed us to try and earn our place with you and it didn't work and then you made a way because of Jesus, because of the cross, we have access to you. Because of the cross, we'll never be rejected by you. Because of the cross, our performance doesn't matter when it comes to being in, in loving union with you. So God, would you just help us find that quiet place. Help us find that intimate place with you. Lord, help us to get rid of all expectation that we have to do, that we have to be frantic, that our faith has to look crazy or insane or uh, dynamic. Lord, we want you in the big, but to do that, we want to find you in the small. Reach down in front of you and pick up those two cups. I can't think of a passage in Scripture that so demonstrates what Jesus did in the Abram story. So Lord, we lift up that first cup that is your body and we recognize that this is what paid the price. So we reach our finger in there and we crush it because the reality is you sent your son to be crushed. This is the penalty that allowed us to have a free gift from you. So take that cup this morning. Lord, we lift up the second cup, the juice that represents your blood. And the beauty of this is that your blood washes us clean. So even though we may come to you with sin, we may come to you with brokenness, we may come to you with fear, we may come to you with pain, we may come to you with whatever burdens us, we come to you and this blood washes us clean. Lord, thank you that this blood represents a fresh start with you every single time we come into your presence. And so we take this in remembrance of you.